Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30, and then Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for behold, Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett, and I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Let me just say before we come to the text, uh, I just think it's worth um, noting and reminding us. uh, you, You are an incredibly generous church, and I just wanted to say thank you on a number of different fronts. Uh, We went to two services this fall, and uh, I really didn't hear any complaining. It was a real shift for us as a church, and you've embraced that. Last week, uh, we had the most people uh, that we've ever had here on a non-Easter Sunday, and so God's blessed. Uh, We continue to see new people coming every week. That's the reason we did it, so thank you for your generosity, your your patience, and your enthusiasm in that. We have a Christmas store, if you didn't catch this, that we do for the school over here that's just adjacent to us. And we asked you to bring um, presents to help because last year we almost ran out of gifts. And I, I, don't, I, I think maybe you caught. But the problem now is we have so many things that you've brought that we're afraid we're not going to have enough kids to give them to. Do you understand that? That's amazing. So now we're scrambling saying, help. We have so much stuff. We've got to find somebody to give it to. What church, the problem is, is that there's too much generosity. They don't know where to put it. Okay, Jeff and his group, a few, year, few weeks ago, he put a list um, in, in, the, in the worship folder of here's all the things that we really need uh, to, to buy and to purchase. Uh, listen, they didn't have to purchase a single thing because you funded every single one of the things on their wish list. Uh, no, I mean, really, that's, that's really the truth. It, it, so I am floored and I am amazed and it is a privilege uh, to pastor you. You are a joy, and, but keep it up because there's a lot of work for us to do. Uh, amen? And so, uh, what, a great, what a great time. Just, I just wanted to celebrate that with you for a moment. Now, we, we come to this text this morning. 
our theme for this Advent, the, the general overall theme, is the kingdom of God. We're looking at this phrase in the Bible all these four weeks and then kind of applying it in a number of different ways. When you come across and you see here in Luke, um, in Luke 13, this is, a, this is a parable about the, about the kingdom as well. So verse 29, uh, And the people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So this is a kingdom of God passage as well. And that's what we're doing. We're taking these kingdom of God passages in Luke and looking at the teaching and what we learn about the kingdom and then applying it back to the, the narratives of the, the Christmas story and this morning with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so we're kind of looking at both of these passages and trying to draw out some of the implications of them for us. And when you come across this phrase, kingdom of God in the Bible, it should at the same time make you, make you feel sadness and longing for what has been lost and, 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 um, and for the, world, the state of the world as it is, but at the same time, hope and joy for what is to come. That's really what the phrase does, is it, is it pulls you in both of those directions. You feel sadness and lost because so much uh, has been lost, but also hope and joy because there's so much yet still to come. And so in our Bible reading this week, in the book of Revelation, John writes to the churches in Asia Minor, and, he's, and he, he calls himself, he describes himself this way. It's pretty marvelous. He says, I am your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's a perfect description. John says, our life in this world is going to be characterized by tribulation, by suffering, sickness, sadness, brokenness, tears, and so forth, and kingdom, which is Promise, hope, power, peace, all of these kinds of things. At the same time, side by side, not ever one without the other, and therefore, therefore patient endurance. And that really is what Advent's all about. Advent's all about tribulation and kingdom being the dual realities of our lives and therefore patient endurance from us as we wait for him to return. Now, each week we are attaching an adjective to the word kingdom to try to explain one of, an aspect of its meaning. So last week we said that the kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It's heaven come to earth. This morning, this morning we're, gonna, we're going to attach this, that it is an upside down kingdom. Though I'm going to argue, if you see there from the sermon title, I'm going to argue that it's not the kingdom of God that is upside down, it's the world that is upside down. It's actually the kingdom of God that's right side up. Now I have in mind language that is common to all the different scriptures that we've been reading from this morning. And it's this language of reversal, of a topsy-turvy reality that happens because of the coming of the king or because of the coming of the kingdom. So bear with me. If you'd look, I wanna, here's what I want to load up. We're going to do this a little different this morning. Your outline's going to be of very little uh, use to you, and I apologize for that. It happens sometimes. But I, I want to look at all of these, these verses for just a minute. So let's walk through it, if you, and let's pay careful attention. If you have a Bible, actually, I should have printed this for you, but just before verse 22 of Luke 13... There's another little parable that begins in verse 18. We're going to look at it in more detail next week. But here's what, here's what Jesus says. He says, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. Now, this imagery there, all the commentators agree, is, is calling forth Ezekiel chapter 17, where the prophet has this similar this similar uh, imagery he uses there of God planting a tree. You know, all the, the, it's, the, you know, the land is a wasteland, and, and the Lord plants a tree, and the tree becomes healthy, and it grows. And all of the, like the cows and the pastures you see here, all of the animals of the forest came to dwell in its shade, and all of the birds 
uh, of, the, of the air came to, you know, nest in its branches. And it's this picture of salvation and, and shalom and healing. And here's what the Lord says there in Ezekiel 17, because I want you to notice this language. And he says, And all of the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. This is Ezekiel 17, verse 24. I will bring, listen to this, I will bring low the high tree. I will make high the low tree. I will dry up the green tree, and I will make the dry tree flourish. For I am the Lord, and I have spoken, and I will do it. So you see, you see the reversal there. The high tree is going to be low. The low tree is going to be high. The healthy tree is going to shrivel up and die. The one that's dry and, and losing leaf is going to find its strength. Okay, so it's this, it's this image in this language of, of reversal. There's a reversal that happens. You see the same thing in Luke 13. Look, this, this parable, this story that they ask him, you know, Lord, will, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus goes through, and, what, and I'm going to get into the details of this in a minute. He tells this, this parable, so to speak. And at the very end, if you look down at verse 30, there's, again, this statement of, this statement of reversal. He says, because of what I'm going to do, in other words, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. So the first take the place of the last, and the last take the place of the first. So it's this, again, it's this language of this reversal. You see it in Luke 6, which, which Susan just read for us a minute ago. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says. Blessed are those who are hungry now, because what's going to happen to them? They're hungry now, but they're going to be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, because you're weeping now, but you are going to laugh. Blessed are you who are persecuted now, for you're going to be rewarded. And then when I didn't print, he goes on in the next few verses, but woe to you if you're rich now, for you will, you will have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, because what's going to happen to you is you're going to be hungry in the future, right? Woe to you who laugh now. Because eventually you're going to be the ones weeping. And so you see it's this complete, it's, it's literally like this, this complete reversal of fortunes that Jesus is describing. Those who have everything they need are the ones that are going to go away empty. Those who are the, the, the most needy among us are the ones that are going to have all uh, that they need and more. And, and there's something happening here he's trying to describe. And maybe you see it most clearly in Luke chapter 1 when Mary... In the passage that Jonathan read just a little while ago, Mary begins, it dawns on her the implications of what God is saying is going to happen with this child that is going to be born, born to her, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God, true God of true God, very God of very God who's come to earth, and she begins to have intuitions about what all of this is going to mean for human society. And so she says things like this, that in this child, God is scattering the proud, he's bringing down the mighty from their thrones, and he's, and he's, he's humbling the exalted ones out of their, their exalted state, and he's, in fact, exalting those who are humbled, and he's filling the hungry with good things, and he's sending the rich away empty. Do you see? It's just it's the same language. And in fact, Mary is really just quoting Hannah from 1 Samuel 2, who at the news of the king, King David who had come from, from the line that was, that was, you know, Samuel was being born and then the king was going to come after him. And Hannah says that what this means, the Lord, all of the Lord's doing here, that the bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble are the ones that bind on strength. Okay, I'm just, I'm reiterating this just to prove a point here. Hannah says, those who are full have now hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren woman is the one who bears children and she who has many children is the one who's forlorn. You starting to get the picture? 
And, and in my preparation, I just started, I, I tried to wrestle through this, and I, I, this language describing the effect of God's salvation, particularly in the Christmas story, uh, is a theme throughout the scriptures, and, and it's very important, but what does it mean? And every time I come across it, I find myself really trying to, trying to figure out how do you, what is it God's trying to teach us here, and how do we really make sense of it, and how do we express it? And so that's all I want to try to do this morning. I just want to take all of that language and I want to draw out some, I think, of the implications and some of the teaching that it provides for us and then talk about what our response should be. So all of this language, this upside-down reversal of fortune language really describes the kingdom of heaven, the work of Jesus, the Savior on our behalf, and what happens as a result of it, and then our, our response, which is the response of Mary that we would sing with joy the way she did, Okay. So let's just talk about what we learned from the kingdom of God in these passages. And I have six things. So instead of two points in your outline, there should be six. They're going to be really quick, hopefully, Lord willing. Famous last words of a preacher, but we'll try. Um, Six things that I think are implications and then our response. The first, I think, is that in all this language that we we read, what what you learn first is that the world and the kingdom are opposites and that they're opposed to one another. The world and the kingdom. That they're opposites and they're opposed to one another. They don't work the same way. What is up in one is down in the other. And what is good in one is bad in the other. That the world is the anti-kingdom and the kingdom of God is the anti-world. So greatness is defined a certain way by the world, by, by the cosmos, by the world we live in. But in the kingdom, to be great is to be a servant. Right? Wealth, according to the world is measured by how much you amass for yourself. But wealth in the kingdom is measured by how much you give away. And so there's just, the kingdom and the world are opposites, and they're, they're, by being so opposite, they're opposed to one another. So, you know, I'm a Seminole fan, and therefore, this is logic, people. I'm a Seminole fan, therefore, orange and blue are ugly. Okay? But if you're a Gator fan, they're beautiful. And you're allowed to be wrong. It's okay. Okay? But, I mean, but, but, you know, I mean, I use this, it's a, it's a silly analogy, but it really, it really is helpful. If you're a Seminole fan like me, you don't, you don't even buy orange and blue. Navy blue, maybe. Then, you know, it gets a little, but, but, um, but not gator blue. It's completely unacceptable. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, and it, it sounds silly, but, but we understand, we understand this reality in very small ways of these competing kingdoms and allegiances, right? I mean, and they really do bleed into all different kinds of, places in our lives, that the world and the kingdom are two warring empires. They're two warring empires. And allegiance and identification, if you show up somewhere and you're, I mean, I, I can't help but comment. One of my, who, somebody, somebody, okay, where I was at a birthday party yesterday and one of my nephews or nieces had orange and blue pants on and I was like, what's the deal? I had to go to their dad and say, can we fix this, please? Right? It just comes out of you. You can't help it because... Because allegiance and identification with one means a complete rejection of the other in every facet of life. And of course, with the kingdom of God and the world, it's much more significant than with Gator Nation versus Seminole Nation. But the point sticks. The scripture says, Do not love the world or the things of the world, for all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then in James 4.4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we learn that the world and the kingdom are opposites and they're opposed to one another. The second thing we learn is that the world, the world, we learn that the world is upside down and the kingdom is right side up. 
we learn in this language that we've seen here about what the kingdom is like so that we can also know what the world is like so that we're able to distinguish between the two. And that's, that's another reason for this language of reversal, that the world and the kingdom are two different alternate visions for human flourishing. So in the kingdom, in the kingdom, to be rich, the way to riches is to empty your barns. The way to true greatness is through humility. You find your life by losing life. And if you keep your life, you end up losing it. It's those who sow in tears, we're told by the scriptures, that will ultimately reap joy. And those that sow selfishly trying to find happiness who end up reaping tears. The vision, this vision of the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, is so counterintuitive. It's so different from our normal experience. It has to be revealed to us. That's why it's here. That's why it's given to us. We would never come to these conclusions on our own because it's not the way the world that we know works. And so without this vision of the kingdom, we might be tempted to think that the way the world works is just the way things really are. That's just the way things are. But all of these passages we looked at in the beginning, here's what the Bible is saying to us. The Bible is saying, this is the kingdom and this is the world and the world is wrong. The world is wrong. It's wrong about where to find life. It's wrong about truth and beauty and goodness. I mean, we say God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, but that misses the point entirely. It isn't the kingdom that is upside-down. It's the world that is upside-down. And the kingdom is the correction. The kingdom is actually right-side-up. It is this language of the kingdom. It is the healing of what is broken in human society. This vision of the kingdom helps us see the world for what it really is. And once we see it, we can say that the world is sick. That the the lie is to believe that following the course of this world is the path to flourishing, but it's not because we're wrong. We're wrong about what's good. We're wrong about what's beautiful. We're wrong because the reality we live in most times is a reality of our own making, not God's. It's a reality that's in defiance of God. That's what that word world really means in the scriptures. And so if you've... uh, if you've seen the movie, the Hobbit movies, or if you've read the book, you know, there's a point in the story where, where this company of dwarves and Bilbo Baggins come to a great forest that they have to pass through in order to get to the, the lonely mountain where they're trying to journey. And, and, and it was once known as the Greenwood because it was lush and beautiful and inviting. But what's happened is, is sometime in the past an evil has invaded and poisoned the forest and now, uh, now the forest greenwood is known as Mirkwood because it has become dark and dangerous and foreboding. And the twe- trees are twisted and diseased. And there are spider webs everywhere, hint, hint, hint. And everything is, is poisonous. And the path through the forest is in disrepair. And it's easy to get lost. And once you get lost, you never find your way back again. And it's a great, it's a great image. It's a great metaphor that the world is sick and dying like that forest. It has been invaded by an evil that has poisoned everything. And here's the thing. The kingdom of God is the cure. That's good news, by the way. The kingdom of God is the cure. And so when you read about the kingdom of God in the scriptures, just a little point, you'll often find that the word righteousness or justice is attached to the kingdom. So Matthew six thirty three, Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Can you finish that, state, that, that phrase? And his righteousness. And that word righteousness means what it sounds like. It means right or straight or as it should be. And so the kingdom, the kingdom of God is right. The world is not right. The world is broken. It's diseased. Something is invaded and poisoned this world we live in. And it's not right. But all of that begins to change 
with Mary's child, the Christ. And that's why she sings like she does, because she knows that when her child comes, righteousness, rightness is going to come with him. And she gets excited. We should too. So there's a third thing. Not only, let me try to trace back through these, that we find that the world and the kingdom are opposites and opposed to one another, and that the world is upside down and the kingdom is right side up. But the third thing in this language that we learn is that that God ultimately, it's a promise that God is ultimately going to overthrow worldly powers and authorities. And so in Jesus' birth, the value systems and priorities of the world are literally being dismantled and replaced. And this is what Mary intuits and sings about. She anticipated this reversal that would signal the undoing of the world's system with all of its cruelty and corruption. And it's still true today that we live in a world where the promise of the kingdom, this vision of human flourishing that we were given in the Bible, is still largely being blocked by power brokers and politicians, by the Taliban and ISIS and others that specialize in cruelty and death, and by corporate scoundrels and thieves who are corrupt and greedy, and by political engines that push an agenda of power and control and who aren't interested in the genuine welfare of the citizenry, and by false religions who wield enormous power and spread lies and incite violence and create fear. And in order for God's vision of flourishing to be achieved, these powers, political and corporate and religious powers that keep the world in slavery, have to be toppled. And that's what he's come to do. So N.T. Wright says, God would have to win a victory over the bullies, the power brokers, the forces of evil we all know too well. But this language speaks of mercy, hope, fulfillment, reversal, revolution, victory over evil, and God's coming to the rescue at last. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The kingdom. The kingdom is the campaign of sabotage. It is the dismantling of the world, the cosmos, the organized systems of human pride and rebellion against God that is responsible for all of the greed and hatred and violence and oppression and and, and so forth that is the cause of so much trouble in our world. The kingdom is God's countermeasure against, against the advance of evil in the world. So the scripture says, do not love the world or the things of the world, for the world is passing away. Do you hear that? Isn't that the world? All of this, all of this brokenness and corruption is passing away. It's on its way out. We watch the nightly news and we say, what's happening to the world? What's happened to the world? I hear people say that and it's a curious statement to me. What's happened to the world is as if the world of the 1960s was a more noble place than the world of today. The world of the 1960s was still the world. But here's the good news. It's on its way out. And for some, it might feel like the loss of the world would be like having to say goodbye to an old friend. But for Mary, for Mary and for us, it should be a reason to sing. And so we see that the world and and the kingdom are opposites and opposed to one another. That ultimately it's the world that's upside down and the kingdom that's right side up. That in this language we find the promise that God is going to overthrow the worldly powers. And then lastly, we, or fourthly, we see that therefore repentance is an absolute necessity. That the world and the kingdom are opposites. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we're told, in the Gospels. And therefore our response should be to repent and believe the Gospel. Repent. Turn your back on the world. Stop doing things the way you've always done them and learn a new way. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, he's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transfer, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so to become a Christian 
You have to experience a change of citizenship. That's what the Bible's talking about here. You were once a citizen of the world. You become a citizen of heaven. And as a result, your life begins to take a completely different shape against cultural norms. And so we are, people of faith are called aliens and strangers and pilgrims. We don't fit in. We don't feel at home in this world. And all of this is in this image of the door. So look here in Luke uh, chapter 13 for just a minute with me. They come to Jesus and they say, Lord, who then will be saved? Will it be a few? And he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven, all of this stuff we're describing and talking about this morning, is like, is not, it's not a mirror reflecting back to the culture its own values and priorities. It's a window. It's a, it, revealing a different way. It's a doorway into a whole new way of living. That the kingdom of God is opposed to and it subverts the values and priorities of the world system and it opens a door to a whole new way of doing life and to get into the kingdom. To begin to experience the power of the gospel in your life flowing through you and out from you into others, you have to walk through the door. There's a door and you have to enter the door. And look here, a couple of things. First, notice the door's narrow, Jesus says, and you have to strive to get in it. So he's talking about decisiveness, repentance. This is, this is, a, this is a horrible evangelistic appeal here. Right? I mean, he, it's a warning. Jesus evangelizes people by warning them. That's pretty remarkable, by the way. He says, not many people get in, and there's not much time. It's a a narrow door, and there's not much time left. Second, notice he says a lot of people who assume they're on the inside really are on the outside, and they need to come in. They need to repent and believe. And this image of the doorway means that we don't get to define what Christianity looks like that Jesus isn't obligated to, to conform to our expectations and desires. We are obligated to conform our lives to his. It works the way he says it works. It doesn't work the way we necessarily want it to work. That is the, that is the faulty logic of most um, postmodern, culturally easy spirituality that you find in our culture. Everybody just kind of do your own thing and do it. And Jesus says, no, there's a door, and if you walk through the door, there's life, and if you don't, there's not, and it, has, it just works the way it has to work. Because he himself said, I am the door of the sheep, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So eventually we find here that the door is shut to these people in Jesus' parable, and they begin to call out, we ate and drank in your presence, verse 26, and you taught us in our streets, and he will answer to them, verse 27, I do not know where you come from. And here's the lesson. What counts is not familiarity or association with Jesus, not attendance, at religious ceremonies or services, what counts is response, change, repentance. But how does this change happen? And that's the fifth thing we see. We're coming to a close here. Fifth, we notice and we, we learn from this that this, the kingdom is a kingdom of grace. The text shows us how this change can happen. It's not through human effort and striving, but through God's grace. The kingdom is a kingdom of grace. And this is what the language is expressing. He says, I will bring the low tree... Down, and I will make the low tree high. I will dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. Verse 30, the last will be first and the first will be last. Luke 152, he fills the hungry and sends the rich away. All of these images that we have here. In the, in the context of Luke 13, these are, these are Jewish people talking to Jesus here. And this language down in verses 28 and following, the, 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 um, the lesson of what Jesus is trying to teach these people here is that 
many of the Gentiles, the people, look there, people from east and west and north and south who are going to recline at the table of the kingdom, these Gentile nations who uh, don't, you know, aren't, aren't a part of God's people, they're the ones that are going to get in, and there are many among God's chosen people, the Israelites, who are not going to get in. And, of course, this would have been terribly offensive to the Jews because they were God's people. They had God's law. They were the moral compass of the world at this time, and that was their problem, see? They began to rely upon their good works and their religious ceremony for a place in the kingdom and not God's grace. There's a parallel passage in Matthew 7 that I think is important, and there the people say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all these mighty works in your name? And he will say to them, you know, I never knew you. But what was their appeal? You see, it was their works. It was their spiritual resume, but it doesn't work that way, and that's, that's the lesson. Luke six twenty. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. And the teaching is not that God hates the rich and loves the poor, or that immoral people are better than moral people. It's not that God hates Israel and loves the Gentiles, and that's why they get in and the Jews are left out. That completely misses the point. The teaching is that salvation is by grace. That salvation has no reference to me and what I do for God. And the reason the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the persecuted are blessed is because their life has been stripped of the illusion that there is anything in the world that has the power to save. The only way to come to God is through weakness, not strength. The condition for entering the upside-down kingdom, that is right-side-up, is need because it's God's power and God's grace that save. And that's part of what this language teaches us. But there's one last point. And the last thing that I think we learn from these, from these scriptures in this language of reversal is that it points us to the gospel itself. The, verse, the verses all speak of a reversal and exchange. The green tree becomes like the dry tree, and the dry tree begins to flourish. The hungry are filled, while those who are full go hungry. The last go first, and the first last. Kings and rulers come down off their thrones and are replaced by the poor and the lowly. All of the language of reversal is pointing to something transcendent, something of ultimate significance. And it's what we learn in the Christmas story. I mean, think about this. When God came to earth... It's very upside down, isn't it? He did, how did he come? He, he took on a human body. He didn't come as a conquering hero. He came as a helpless little baby. He did not come to conquer and rule. He came to suffer and die, and through his death to conquer hell itself. I mean, Christmas is the most high. God himself has become the most low, a tiny little baby. That though he was rich, he became poor. See, do you hear all this language? John Stott famously said that the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of the gospel is that God has come to substitute himself for us. So all this language of reversal, exchange, substitution, it all points us to the gospel. Mary sings about God's salvation. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones because God himself has come down off his ultimate throne and become nothing that we might be lifted up. In Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, two of the lead characters, Charles and Sidney, these two men look very much alike, and they both love the same woman, Lucy. Lucy chooses to marry Charles, and they have a child together. The setting of the story is the French Revolution, and Charles is a French aristocrat. And so he's arrested and uh, imprisoned and sentenced to death. And at the very end of the novel, Sidney, his friend, his old friend, who is English, he visits Charles in prison on the night before his execution, and he offers to exchange places with him. Charles refuses at first, but Sidney has him drugged and smuggles him away, and then he takes his place. 
in, in the morning out of love for his friend and out of love for the woman that he has loved his whole life and for their happiness together, he, this man, the innocent, chooses to die for his friend so that Charles and Lucy and their family can escape and live. In Jesus Christ, God has come into the world to take our place. He has strategically bore a resemblance to us so that he could die the death that we deserve to die for our sins, that we might go free. Now, what should our response to this be? How does Mary respond? You see it in Luke 1. Mary begins to sing, my soul magnifies the Lord. We're going to sing this in just a minute. My, my soul, I rejoice in God my Savior. And joy, joy like that is the hallmark of the person who has been touched by grace Joy, even when things start to go bad. Joy, I mean, Luke six twenty three. joy even in persecution. Leaping for joy. Uh, there's a story, let me finish with this. There's a story uh, also in Luke chapter 1 that really just catches my amazement every time I read it. But it's the story of John the Baptist and Elizabeth. We looked at Elizabeth last week and her child, John, in Elizabeth's womb. There's a time where Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was... Who, Jesus in Mary's womb and John in Elizabeth's womb and, and Mary uh, comes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin. And when she walks in the room, the proximity to the Savior, the Lord Jesus, John in his mother's womb begins to go crazy. He leaps for joy. Now that, that's amazing to me. That this child in the womb of his, of his um, mother leaps for joy when he gets in the presence of his Savior. The gospel is good news. The gospel's good news, like learning your football team made the playoffs yesterday. Or that the baby, you, you laugh. That, that's, I mean, not for my team, but for some teams, that's good news. Or that the baby you'd hoped and prayed for is finally on its way. Or that the test came back and the sickness is gone. That kind of joy, spontaneous joy, automated joy, the kind of joy you might feel if you've been adrift at sea in a life raft for days without food or water. And then... On the horizon, you see the land. And, and listen, in that moment, and I don't know from experience, but I'm, in that moment, you don't have to talk yourself into joy. After 21 days at sea, if you see land, it's not, you know, oh, wow, there's land. I, you know, I probably should be, I should be joyful about that. You don't, have, you don't have to do that. It's right there. And that's the kind of joy John felt. But let me ask this question of me, of you. If it's not right there, then what does that mean? It means that something is really broken on the inside, that there's a spiritual dullness, a hardness of heart. We have no problem generating enthusiasm at sporting events, concerts, political rallies, but it's hard when it comes to spiritual things. Why is that? It's because we don't, we don't work right. We don't work right. Something's broken inside of us, and we, we need him to come and fix us because the joy that should be ours often is not. But the hope, the hope this morning as we come to this table... As we sing together at the end of the services, if we come to him in faith and repentance, if we come to him in, in our lack of joy and we say, Lord, I'm, I'm empty, fill me. I'm the poor. I'm the poor and the needy. Um, you know, lift me up. Lord, I'm the one that does not have what I need. Uh, that, that that kind of need and that kind of um, living without is the very thing that activates his love and his power for you. And so I, I just encourage us, if you're like me, if you say, man, something's really broken, I know I should feel joy and I don't, let's come to this table and beg for him to so work in our lives that he gives us the very thing that we desperately need so that we can honor and glorify him because he's most glorified in us when we're most joyful in him. So let's pray as we come to the table now. Father, thank you for the provision of this meal. We do not come 
to this table this morning because we have it, we have it all together and we're, we're right and we're clean and we've fixed ourselves up and so we come before you, we come to this table because we are in rags, we are in need, we are broken at our very core, we, we exult in things that have little to no significance and we, we have a hard time exulting, exulting in things that are of the greatest significance, there's something desperately broken about us. And so we thank you that the promise not only of your kingdom is that you would come to reverse the world system and to make all things new, but that you've come to make us new as well. And that by the power of your spirit as we gather around this table and meet you here at this place, that you can come. And like the dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, you can cause us to live. We cry out to you, we are the poor. We are the poor in spirit. We are the broken. We are the needy. We are dying of hunger and thirst. Because nothing in this world satisfies. And so we come to this table to be strengthened, to be made rich, to be nourished, to find the life that we so desperately need. So meet us here, we pray. And we pray it in your name. Amen. See, just as Mary, when she got word of this child that was going to be born, she, she, her intuition took over and she thought things are never going to be the same. And she began to sing for joy. So, so the truth of the gospel means that we... As a people, as we embrace the reality of what God has come to do for us in Christ Jesus and the promise of these words that I speak over you now, we can go from this place knowing that things truly are not the same, that there is now a king who has landed and he has conquered and he is conquering and he asks us to come along uh, for the ride. That's what we're going to do no matter how hard it is, no matter how sad uh, the reality we might have to walk through is, these words ring true. And so reach out and grab them by faith. Uh, and go, um, go full of strength and uh, in, in confidence in God's power and grace to save. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.